This is Peter David, and when I think of you, I touch myself. Disenfranchised by the modern comics industry, Scott Gardner and Michael Bailey now ply the time stream in a never-ending quest to rediscover and reconnect with that unique brand of fun and excitement that can only truly be found in good old-fashioned randomly selected comic book back issues. Journey with them now, back, back to the bins. Everybody and welcome back to Back to the Bins, a podcast dedicated to the comic books of yesterday. My name is Michael Bailey, and I'm Christian Bale. Don't you mean I'm Christian Bale? I'm Christian Bale. <laughs> we'll digitally alter your voice and post to make it even <laughs> crappier. So pray to me, swear to me. That was it. Swear to me. Yeah, it's not pray to me. Swear. That that's my impersonation of Christian Bale as Batman. <laughs> Just one time I wanted somebody in one of those movies to go, what? What did you just say? I'm sorry, dude. I can't understand you. Or like have some cops in the background. It's like, how does Gordon understand that guy? (laughs) Harvey Dent. Get this man a secret. Stat. (laughs) But we're not going to get into an extended um, conversation involving... Oh, come on. Yeah, no, no, we, no, we are not. <laughs> no, 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 we are not. <laughs> I, I like winding you up. I don't like sending you on a, on a potentially, on a potential killing spree. I, I, know, <laughs> I know you got Saints Row 2 to kind of take that all out of you, but come on. <sighs> so, anyways, you're up first this week, uh, mi amigo. Sweet. So, what'd you all bring right. to the table? This is a Marvel comic book. A Marvel comic book. We are going back to December 1965 for this baby. Wow. Written by Stan the Man Lee. Art by Steve Ditko. This is The Amazing Spider-Man number 31. I just got this baby. My wife, I love my wife. She's such a sweetheart. She bought me this book. We stopped into, of all places, a little... It's like a little like mom-and-pop... Uh, print store. It's like a like a mom and pop version of Kinkos or something that's in Villarica, Georgia. And I knew that they sold like like used books and stuff like that. I stop in there every now and again, you know, just if I'm in the neighborhood, just to see if they might have you know some Star Wars or Star Trek paperbacks cheap or something like that. And I was walking in the door, and they had a sign right on the door says, "We now sell comic books." And I was like, <gasps> "Comic books." So I go in, and it was a bunch of crap. You know, it was mostly, like, all these, like, Archies. and I mean, I, I shouldn't say crap. I'm sure there's somebody out there that loves that stuff. I'm not into it. But anyway, they had a showcase where they had all these old, mostly Silver Age books. And this was there. And I don't know. Come to think of it, maybe it's not so much that she loved me, that she just didn't want to hear me cry the entire car ride home. <laughs> But my wife bought this for me. $10. Can you believe wow, that? Wow. That's a really... Yeah, I saw the scan. It's in pretty decent condition. Yeah, it is. It's in really good... Really, the only thing that's really wrong with it, other than... I mean, you know, it, it's it's weathered and all that. Um, the only thing that's really wrong with it is uh, there is a chunk out of the back cover, uh, like a small corner, and then there's a tear on the back cover that somebody at one time tried to fix with tape, so it's a little bit brown. But other than that, damn, it's in good shape. It's it's complete. And I've got 80s books that are yellower than this book is. So it's actually in really good shape. And of course, you know, I knew that it was a Stan and Ditko, you know, collaboration and all that. But honestly, and, and this is where I have to profess 
you know, I have to make a confession. I don't know a lot about Spider-Man of this era. I've naturally, I've read, you know, Amazing 15 and Spider-Man number one and two and a handful of the early books. I don't believe I've ever read this story before. So I was really excited about it. And I made three incredible discoveries in this one issue, which I'll get to in a moment. Anyway, that's enough of me bragging about my awesome, awesome deal. This is a story called If This Be My Destiny. There's a great Steve Ditko um, splash page of uh, Spider-Man fighting these three disguised goons that have gas guns. It's really cool. It's It's a moment that we would see later in the book. Anyway, it starts off... And these guys are pulling off a heist for someone called the Master Planner. And they gas a security guard and they steal all this equipment and they take off. Spider-Man, who I guess is just in the vicinity, just happens to be in the neighborhood, spots this going on, goes after them. And he theorizes that, you know, wow, if these guys have, you know, this fancy getaway vehicle, which is this really big helicopter, you know, they must be real operators, he says. And he... (laughs) swings up and he smashes the door in and he gets into a fight with these guys well they're all armed with gas guns and they're trying to take him down but thankfully spider-man had got a good gulp of air before the battle started and he says that uh i can hold my breath much longer than they uh, suspect so while he's beating the shit out of these guys in the back compartment of the uh excuse me in the front compartment of the helicopter in the back of the helicopter the other guys are like well you know there's every chance that Spider-Man's going to catch us, so they wrap up everything that they had stolen in these special encasings, and then they just drop it into the water. I I don't know that it ever really explains where this water is. I guess it's one of the New York rivers, where at this secret underwater base, these diver guys swim out, and they retrieve everything. Spider-Man's not aware of any of this. He's just fighting the guys in the helicopter or what. And after a while, the gas does start to have an effect on him, So he takes the smashed-in door of the helicopter, throws it outside into the rotor blades of the helicopter, and literally takes the helicopter out. He jumps out. The rest of the guys in the helicopter, they plunge into the drink. So Spider-Man, you know, he surfaces, and he's like, well, I can't just let these guys drown. So he swings back, or swims back down, rather, to rescue them, and they're all gone. And he's completely mystified. Where the hell did these guys go? So they, of course, they swam to the underwater base and they tell their boss, the master planner, who we never see, uh, that Spider-Man foiled everything that was going on. We cut to the next morning and Peter and his ancient, almost mummified Aunt May, they have a moment. so freaking old in this Uh, You know... I, I I realize I should probably cut this woman a break, but here's my here's my problem with Aunt May. It it actually stems from issues like this. Now this is number thirty one, right? Spider Man's not been around for very long. Uh, I'll jump ahead in the story right now to tell you that most of the drama in this story is because shortly after this moment between Peter and, and his Aunt May, when Peter leaves for co- for his first day of registration for college, she has an attack. He takes her to the hospital. She's dying. Through the whole goddamn issue, she's dying. And at the end of the issue, she's literally dying. This is issue 31. The woman looks like she's easily 100 years old. Yet here we are in 2010. What is this? 45 years later? And she's still around and she's still pulling this same shit. It's like, Jesus, you know, let this character go. She had a great send-off a few years ago. An amazing 400. I really, really wish that they had just let that be it. Because she had a, she, it was a great way for the character to go out. Anyway, that's besides the point, I just wanted to, to clarify why I don't like this character. Why I feel like she really holds Spider-Man back, you know? Anyway, he goes off and uh, he registers for school and gets all his books. And it's really great. As someone who just went through this shit... I was like, wow, this actually is pretty accurate even today, all these years later. This is pretty much still the way college works. He gets home. He's so excited. You know, everything went great. He had a great day at school, and she's all happy for him and everything. Suddenly, she collapses in his arms, and his whole whole world turns topsy-turvy, which is a great Peter Parker moment. This is exactly yes. like how P- Peter Parker works. Every time he gets a moment where life is, is going great, suddenly it all goes to shit for him. And Peter's really upset. He's very worried about his aunt. 
and you know we have a we have some really great Stan Lee dialogue in this you know some some internal dialogue with Peter how she's been like a mother to him and he's taken for her her for granted and all this stuff and he really feels bad he goes to school on his first day and he's very into himself he never slept all night because he was so worried about his aunt and we see um, Flash Thompson you know the the bully asshole guy from Peter Parker's high school days is meeting and I found this out after I looked it up, meeting for the first time um, Harry Osborne and Gwen Stacy. This is actually their first appearance in, in Spider-Man. So I thought that was... I did not know when I bought this book that this was their first appearance. So that's actually a pretty big deal. When Gwen Stacy was ugly. Yeah, she... Uh, was, I don't think she's so much ugly as she... She reminds me much more of, like, Felicia Hardy... Or Silver St. Cloud or somebody than she does... I mean, she is not... I've never seen her like this before. I mean, I remember, like, the Ramita Sr. Gwen Stacy from around the time that she died, and she looks completely different in this. She looks... She actually looks more like a... uh, Oh, what's that term? Like a cougar. You know, like she's chasing the younger guys type of thing. And there's (laughs) there's even something in here where she says something about... Peter Parker being the only guy, you know, the only, I think she calls him a teenager, or the only boy or something that's never given me a tumble. It really, the way she's drawn, she looks much older than the men around her. It's actually a little bit creepy. But anyway, they're all talking and everything when uh, Parker walks by them, and they're all, you know, having their different reactions to him, but they're expecting him to talk to them or acknowledge them. He blows right by them because he's so worried and he's you know you can see his thought balloons it's all he's thinking about is when he can get back to aunt may when when can i be done with this and get back to aunt may i'm so worried about aunt may and it's aunt may aunt may aunt may and through the the whole school segment every interaction he has people are saying like hey how's it going pete or you know hi hey uh, parker how you doing or hey it's puny parker whatever and he doesn't even hear them because he's so into himself. So it gains him the reputation of he's a, a dick. You know, he thinks he's, you know, bigger than everybody else. Because apparently he won his scholarship to this school. Yeah. So all the fellow students are now thinking that he thinks he's better than everybody else because he doesn't socialize with them when that's not the case at all. He's literally so into himself, he's just not aware of his surroundings. So anyway... At the end of the uh, school day, he goes, he checks on his aunt, and things go well between them, but the doctor's warning him, you know, don't get your hopes up, it really doesn't look good for your aunt. He gets home, there's a mountain of bills, and he realizes they're about out of money, so he's got to go out as Spider-Man and try to get some photos. He goes out, he's out the entire night, nothing. He's wasted his whole night, he gets home, he's got just a short bit of time to do some studying before school, he he's, can't keep his eyes away, open gets to school, he's having a miserable day, he's tired, he's exhausted, he's out of money, you know, his night as Spider-Man was useless, everybody on campus thinks he's a douchebag, it's, it's really, this poor guy can't catch a break. So in the meantime, J. Jonah Jameson's having a fit, you know, there's nothing to put on the front page of the paper, so he sends out this guy, um, what the hell is this guy's name, uh, Foswell, who looks like a gangster, to gain a story, you know, to find a story. And Foswell gets in touch with one of his contacts, this uh, guy named Patch, to go out and uh, see what he might be able to, to rustle up. He overhears somebody talking about uh, loading cargo of nuclear devices at some pier, and he decides to track that down and see where that might lead. And we get a little interaction between Pete and uh, Gwen Stacy where he pretty much blows her off and she's really pissed about it. <laughs> Pete's back dealing with his aunt. It's it's really a lot of back and forth the same kind of scenes. Eventually Spider-Man goes out again looking for news photos and that patch guy sees him swinging around and he calls to him and he says, you know, I have a tip. You know, you might want to look into it and, and Spider-Man's immediately like, you know, well, why don't you just call the cops? And the guy's like, well, you know, I don't have enough evidence to call the police, but, you know, it might be something you might want to check into. So Spider-Man, he, he's grateful for, you know, a possible opportunity that might pan out for him picture-wise. So he goes to check into it. Sure enough, 
it's the master planner's goons are pulling another heist. Spider-Man goes in, he lays into these guys, he ends up breaking up the, the whole thing. It turns out he had actually come up with a very clever little face mask thing to protect himself from the gas, and unfortunately the guys end up getting away because again they they can swim away underwater with their special equipment and he can't pursue them but he was able to break you know the whole racket up and everything unfortunately he never set up his equipment before he started the fight so again he's left empty-handed at the end of it he never got any pictures or anything so we see him run away at the end and we have two little prologue scenes one of which is the master planner who we never do see ranting and railing about how he's just you know he's had enough of spider-man's meddling and then we get another scene that's in an, a laboratory a laboratory excuse me where uh may parker's tests are being studied where these guys come to the realization that the poor woman can't last much longer yeah i wish <laughs> and you know i really really dug this because as i say i'm pretty sure i've never read this before and i thought it was cool as a nice little insight to some early early spider-man stuff and i i got a real kick out of it i thought it was a really enjoyable story and i'd like to read this further because i have a feeling i know where it goes and i think i know who the master planner is but i don't know that i've necessarily ever read those stories and i think that underwater base isn't that the one that ends up collapsing on Spider-Man, and it's that famous scene where he's got to lift all that wreckage and shit off of him. It might be. I am. I am not as uh, familiar with that particular era of Spider-Man as I am with others. I, I have them all. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have uh, <clears throat> the first eight volumes of, of things falling in the background and causing a racket. <laughs> no, I have. Uh, I have the first eight volumes of the Essential Spider-Man. Which is actually a really neat way to read it. I am a very big fan, though, uh, of of Spider-Man. It, it's uh, of this era of Spider-Man, though, that I've read. I've read like the first twenty issues, and I love the Lee Ditko era. I prefer the Lee Romita mm-hmm. Senior era because I just I just like his Spider-Man better than Ditko's. Right. But there, there's something really raw and and cutting edge about everything involving the character. Right. It went in places that superheroes really never had before. Before that became a complete and utter cliche. You know, I, I'm I'm a big fan of Spider-Man. He's not in my top five, but I like the character. And uh, God, I really want to dig out the essential and read this issue. Yeah, I, see, I didn't realize that that he was in college so quickly. I really thought, you know, especially with, and this is not to tangentist, but to you know, with, with what has recently happened with that character being reset to the the high school era or whatever era he's at now, I was under the impression that the, the whole high school era lasted much longer than it did. But here, this is issue 31, and he's starting college already. So really, that didn't last very long at all. Well, but you got to look at it. I think it was a bi-monthly book at one point. Ah, uh, that's true, too. Yeah, I think So it right. probably was like many many years i think lee and ditko only lasted like four or five years together as a team yeah he was gone by 38 or nine something like that i'm sure somebody brad douglas yeah chris johnson (laughs) all these people that we know that are much more into (laughs) spider-man they're probably cringing and going god what's wrong with these assholes they don't know shit about (laughs) spider-man but no, I will confess that I'm not, you know, I'm not up on Spider-Man of this early era well at all, which is why I was so thrilled to get this, you know, this issue. No, that's a that's a real find. That, that I love those kind of finds too, and I, and I I I really wish I could find something like that. I like uh, I like the Marvel books. You you put it up. You didn't mention it yet, but this is a Marvel pop art production. Yes. Uh, when Stan Lee was putting that on all the books to kind of separate them on the stands from the rest of it it's that it's not it's not a comic book it's pop art right so and and trying to get in on the counterculture which you know say what you will about stan lee the man knew how to sell comics Mm -hmm. (laughs) the man knew how to market himself and his company to the point where they did become the dominant force in comic books and still you know dc you know comes up and fights for air every once in a while but marvel is usually people's preferences it's not mine because I'm a DC kid, and and always will be. But 
of the Marvel characters I like, Spider-Man is is definitely uh, high on the list. Oh, yeah. So that was awesome. <laughs> like that a lot. Well, I'm curious what you brought to the table today. <laughs> well, we're going over to DC, since I was just saying how much I love DC. But uh, I uh, I have a large collection of, uh, of the Brave and the Bold. I, I like these 70s uh, era team-up books. That's why I... Recently got a huge collection of Marvel two on I mean two in one. <laughs> I just want to say two on one, and that just sounds well, like the, the very first issue that's misprinted on the cover. It does say two on one. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyways, I chose the Brave and the Bold number one thirty two. This is from February nineteen seventy seven. Cover price of thirty cents, and this is where Batman teams up with Richard Dragon. Kung Fu Fighter. <laughs> and on the cover, it has Batman and, and Richard Dragon taking out some goons. They're side by side now, but will it end with Batman as the Dragon Slayer? <clears throat> dun, dun, dun. So anyways, we, we, we open with a prologue of this gang of toughs, I guess is the best way to describe them, about to beat up an old man who's just riding along on his bicycle. And Richard Dragon shows up and says, you know, this shit's not going to happen. They take a swing at him, and he rather handily takes them all out. And uh, I love martial arts characters in general. Uh, Oh, I didn't give the credits. I'm sorry. I just ran in. This story is by Bob Haney with art by Jim Aparo. Sweet. So, uh, So you have some Jim Aparo fight scenes, and, and he wasn't really good with the chop sake stuff, for lack of a better term, but, you know, his art is, in this era was always dynamic, so so he saves he saves the old man, uh, who has a flat tire with his bicycle, he lets him, you know, he helps him with a, you know, pump up the air in the bike, and Richard Dragon offers to buy him a cup of coffee or something, and he's like, uh, good idea, but I have no money, and Richard Dragon gives him what look what looks like a quarter which I guess in 77 could get you a cup of coffee somewhere. <laughs> I'm not quite sure. And the guy uh, thanks him, and, and he's like, what's your name? He goes, my name is Dragon. Richard Dragon. So we cut to the we cut to the present, basically. It's a year later, and Richard Dragon is walking out of a dojo in Gotham City. He's walking through the park, and suddenly he is confronted by the stylist, who is not, as you would imagine, somebody who cuts hair, <laughs> but is a karate killer for hire. Oh, he needs a more butch name, big time, dude. So, yeah, and he needs a better outfit. He's bald, he's got an eye patch, and he's got, like, the, the ripped, sho- the, ripped uh, the, sh- the sleeveless uh, top uh, gi gear with purple pants. So I think he, he ch- later joined the, uh, the village people. <laughs> So, the stylist calls him out. I offer combat here and now. Uh, and Richard Dragon's like, look, you obviously got issues, but uh, I don't have a fight for you. Uh, I don't have any fight with you. You know, I'm just going to keep on walking. And that's when the stylist attacks, and they go at it a little bit, back and forth, back and forth. And finally, uh, Richard Dragon starts getting the upper hand and starts hitting him with this uh, piece of bench, it looks like. When Batman shows up, mistaking Richard Dragon to be a mugger, showing that Batman really wasn't paying attention to the situation. (laughs) So Batman and Richard Dragon start fighting a little bit, and it's kind of interesting because nowadays, you know, the the martial arts aspect of Batman is so ingrained in the character. Yes, you know, he's he's not just you know, it's not he's uh, he's not just a guy that can take care of himself. He is one of the world's most accomplished martial arts, and uh, here. (laughs) Here he goes, karate stuff, eh? I know a few things about, th- and and flips Richard Dragon that. So it's just like, this is just another thing in his utility belt, basically. Mm-hmm. Like, I can fight with karate. So they start going at it a little more. Batman switches to boxer, uh, boxing, excuse me, and they finally realize, hey, you know, we're we're both pretty evenly matched. Let's talk this out. And... Richard Dragon explains, you know, that was the stylist. You allowed him to escape. And Batman's like, well, I should really check this out. And and Richard Dragon's like, of course you do. Uh, which, besides uh, truth being the only rock, is another reason I do not lie. 
whatever the hell that means. <laughs> Truth being the only rock is another reason I do not lie. So, so they start checking things out, and as they're walking away, they realize somebody is following them in a limousine, and, and Batman grabs the guy, and he's just, you know, and he's like, what's your game? And the driver's like, hey, hey, I, I got nothing. I, just, I was just told to deliver this envelope to Richard Dragon. And the, the envelope contains a quarter and a key to a Las Vegas uh, safe deposit box. And Richard Dragon's like, well, you know, about a year ago I saved uh, an, a man, an old man from senseless violence. And Batman realizes that the man he saved was Calvin Curtis, an eccentric billionaire who just died. They haven't found his will yet. And Dragon's like, it can't be him. He was just a shabby hobo. And Batman explains that Curtis was just one of these eccentrics who realizes, uh, who just would occasionally go out into the world and act like a poor man. And Batman draws a quick picture of him. God, that's goofy. And, and Dragon's like, yeah, that's it. So they figure out that the stylist is somehow involved in this. That if Richard Dragon is getting this information in the key in the quarter, that somebody is probably out to kill him to uh, get the information. So Batman takes on the stylist, and <laughs> you can't hear the name and not laugh, can you? I keep imagining somebody like that, that Adam Sandler character in that, what was that recent movie that he did where he was the assassin stylist? I f- uh, what I mean? Yeah, I, I keep exactly. picturing that when you're when you're. It's just that I don't know. Was was that not associated with a certain stereotype back in the day when this story would have been written? Yes, yes, it is. <laughs> but while Batman is fighting the stylist, a news van from NBS TV rolls up and goes, "That anonymous phone tip was right. Great tip for the, a great bit for the six o'clock news." Batman brutalizes a citizen. <laughs> And uh, and the stylist gets away, and he tracks down Richard Dragon, and he issues a challenge to him. And they're about to start fighting when Batman... Uh, what the hell is going on in this page? <laughs> uh, they face off in the park again. A cop tries to stop them, and, you know, the stylist stabs him for his trouble. And... <laughs> You realize, God, I'm sorry, I've completely lost track of what's going on on this page. <laughs> I just read this, too. Oh, I see what's going on. So Commissioner Gordon runs up and says, Good Lord, Batman, Murphy's hurt bad, which is the cop, and the killer got away. Your wild idea to impersonate this dragon fellow backfired. And Batman's like, perhaps not, Commissioner. The sergeant here will live, and now the stylent is a fugitive. Wherever he runs, I will be one step behind. And so, and, and Dragon's like, so shall I. So they <laughs> they go out to the uh, Gotham airport two days later because apparently this investigation is a priority for them. You know that they're just hanging around for forty eight hours. And one of the guys working on the tarmac and in air freight is a fellow handler and a follower of the martial arts discipline. He tells them that a crate bound for. Matanzas, Yucatan, was x-rays like all cargo for possible bombs or explosives, and it contained a complete set of kung fu weapons. Say, you kung fu guys have some network, because Batman's kind of impressed that this guy knows Richard Dragon and is basically helping him because they both study martial arts. And Dragon explains that the Brotherhood of Self-Knowledge is widespread. He thanks Walt, the, the, the tarmac guy, and they basically are going to track him down to the Yucatan. And this, this scene is why I chose to bring this book to the table today. Because Batman and Richard Dragon, in full costume, are sitting in first class on <laughs> an international flight. Mike, doesn't he have a jet? <laughs> Basically, what happened, in my head, this is what happened. Batman and Richard Dragon walked up to the ticket agent, 
They got two probably one-way tickets to the Yucatan. They waited at the gate. A stewardess took their tickets, told them where they were sitting. They sat down, buckled their seatbelt when they were told to, and just went on a flight. (laughs) God, Bob Haney was weird. I'm serious. This makes me laugh so hard. No, it's it's completely ridiculous. It really is. I mean, because you're right. For one thing, he's got his own he's got his own jet and bat copter and everything, a bat boat, whatever, to get there on his own. So he doesn't need any of this. Uh, Plus, I mean, I I mean really, even so. back in what what year did you say this was? Seventy-seven. 70s? Yeah, I mean, even in seventy-seven. I mean, could you get? A bat utility belt full of gas bombs and shit through airport security, even yeah, back then? Well, the TSA today would confiscate that shit in a heartbeat. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I didn't fly in 77, so I don't quite know what airport security was like. <laughs> I know it was a little more laid back because a lot of the... A lot of what would eventually become airport security happened because of all of the hijackings in the 70s and right. 80s. So, you know, it's like in the 60s, you could pretty much almost walk up to the plane on the ramp. So, But they get to the Yucatan, and they take out a bunch of people breaking into this place, and uh, the stylist gives back the money that this guy named Esteban had paid him to kill Richard Dragon. He's like, I failed to kill Richard Dragon. I'm returning... Uh, your $50,000, and Esteban is like, try again, Stylus, I will increase the the fee. And the Stylus is a little upset because, uh, you know, he's failed twice in his in, in his duty, and this is like a thing against his, don- uh, this is a thing involving his honor. So Esteban is like, Dragon must die, that old fool, my former partner, Calvin Curtis, hinted he left much of his riches to Dragon out of stupid gratitude. (laughs) But if Dragon is dead, then I will inherit it all, and I need vast sums of money to run Matanzas and pay off the local officials. (laughs) Because he's running out of money, but he's paying this dude $50,000 to kill Richard Dragon. So Batman shows up, he and Dragon take everybody out, Esteban tries to get Richard Dragon with a machete, but the stylist saves him, because again, it's a matter of honor. And they go after the stylist, but he escapes. Uh, You know, and, and Richard Dragon's like, you know, Batman goes, Blast, lost him. And Richard Dragon goes, No, he is not lost. He has found himself in his honor again. He walked into quicksand, no doubt deliberately. So basically, the stylist just killed himself. (laughs) So we get back to Las Vegas. It's one week later. Because, again, apparently they were just chilling out in the Yucatan, maybe <laughs> checking out the beaches. I don't know. The, the The fact that so much time passes in this story just makes me laugh. And they have the safety de- deposit box. And <laughs> in the meantime, crime runs rampant in yeah. Gotham City. <laughs> so they open the, the safety deposit box, and sure enough, it does contain uh, Calvin Curtis's will, but... It left everything to Carlos Esteban as long as he remains within the law. So Esteban is in a Mexican jail for life, which means he's probably going to be killed very soon. (laughs) So all of the the money goes to charity. Curtis left nothing to Dragon, and Batman's like, sorry about that. And he's like, no, he left me something, and in the safety deposit box, which is apparently huge is a bicycle pump that says, Richard Dragon, forgot to return this, a thousand thanks, CC. And that's the end. This is the great thing about Brave and the Bold (laughs) in this era, is that sometimes the stories were like really, really, you know, like good crime dramas, and sometimes they were just goofy as hell like this. And no, the art is great. Uh, Jim Aparo's Batman is a little more demonic looking in this issue. Uh, the ears are a little farther apart than I'm used to with him, mm-hmm. uh, but it, it's it's a it, it's a solid story. This this is very much what people thought of as a martial arts story in, in the '70s. Uh, you know, when we were when America was just getting into that, thanks to Bruce Lee in the early part of the decade. But uh, but I liked it. I just can't get past 
you know, Batman and Richard Dragon flying first class. <laughs> yeah, Bob Haney, he didn't go out of his way to, uh, you know, to jump through a lot of hoops to get the characters to mash up in those stories. That's kind of what I like about that title. I think that was actually part of the charm of it, was mm-hmm. Batman... I mean, he ran the gamut of characters that he teamed up with in Brave and the Bold. Because I remember some of my favorite ones when when he would team up with, like, Commandy. Mm-hmm. And I bought an issue not long ago where he teamed up with Scalp Hunter, back when I was collecting all of Scalp Hunter's appearances. That story, you know how Batman winds up back in the Civil War era to team up with Scalp Hunter? How? He goes to a hypnotist who hypnotizes him. Now, what the hell does a hypnotist have to do with sending someone back in time? But that's how he winds up back. He, he convinces Batman that, that he, I don't know, that he can time So Batman travel. hallucinates this. Yeah, basically. Okay. But at the end of it, you're left believing that he really did go back. It's really wacky. But like I say, Bob Haney, he was just more about let's get to the story rather than the mechanics of how are we going to get batman to the far future or this other planet or you know this alternate dimension or whatever rather than he was concerned with you know let's get to the bang you know the slam bang action and i kind of like that in a way you know that that he didn't dicker around with with the minutiae of how it was going to work he just got to it (laughs) and that really makes for a fun and wacky read and, you know, you couple that with nine times out of ten, it was awesome apparel artwork. And that's why that title's just a hell of a lot of fun. Well, it, it's a book you can literally just pick up and read. You don't have to worry about continuity, right. which I like. But if you're just looking for a quick read, you know, sometimes you don't want to be sit down and read part three of an ongoing story. Right. You know, you can read a bunch in or, you know, write all, all in a row. None of them really call back to each other all that much, and they're just they're what they serve a, a specific function, which is you're coming in because it's a Batman title, but you're exposed to Richard Dragon, or you're exposed to Scalp Hunter, or you're exposed to Commandy, or the there's a great one with a which is an elongated man story that I absolutely love that has some really awesome uh, Jim Apero art. And that is the appeal. It was the same for DC Comics Presents. It's the same mm-hmm. for Marvel Team Up, and it's the same for Marvel Two and One. You know, they're not all gold as far as stories are concerned, but they're all pretty much fun, right? Just just to see like the separate characters thrown together. I, now, I, Bat- Batman and Richard Dragon are kind of more of a natural fit, right? But still, I mean, that that that's not in the same wheelhouse, really. I miss the. Comics can't seem to produce books like this anymore. Yes, because I, I, you know there was Brave and the Bold came a you know came back recently, and I'm not talking about the one that's tied into the TV show, but there was the one that uh, that Wade and Perez were doing. Mm-hmm. And while it did garner some critical acclaim and all that, ultimately, I, I think a lot of people, myself included, considered it something of a failure. And I think the problem with that book was that on the one hand. A lot of people didn't like the overarching nature of it. They wanted it to be more like the classic, you know, one-shot type of story, you know, one-and-done type of story. But in today's comic market, I think one-and-done stories of that nature, I I think that those titles don't last. I think that, you know, they can come out, they can make a small splash, and then boom, they disappear again because the nature of the biz has changed and people just, if it doesn't tie into the overall whatever the hell's going on in your universe, then nobody cares about it. Well, it's not so much that nobody cares about it, but it's a risk for the companies because they've they've put all their eggs in the ongoing story basket and writing for the trade that if you have six issues that don't have anything to do with each other, how do you package that you know, right. together outside of the showcase presents of the Brave and the Bold stuff? Right. So, But, but I mean, uh, I've heard that a lot of times over the years, you know, Man, you know, such and such was such a great title. You know, why don't they bring it back? You know, like I'll use Marvel Team Up as a perfect example. Marvel Team Up was a good book back in the day. And people would be like, man, why don't they bring that back? And they'll bring it back. And Marvel Team Up has come back umpteen times. Yes. Every time it comes back, it lasts like, you know, six or eight issues and boom, it disappears again because somehow 
it's just one of those comic book examples of not being able to go home again. Somehow it just doesn't happen. And I, I, I wonder what the magic formula is that, that well, they're not able to recapture. The magic formula that they're not able to recapture is that the, the current reading audience is not trained for done-in-ones. Mm. You know, when you came up in the 70s, and even in the 80s to a certain extent, as many stories that continued into each other, since the predominant uh, means for comic book distribution was the newsstand, uh, you know, you couldn't really do uh, overarching story arcs because you didn't know if you were, you know, like you've said a thousand thousand times, and uh, more recently on this, you know, you read part one of a Defender story, and it was 20 years before you read the second part because it didn't show up on the newsstand, or you missed out on it. So... When you ha- when you're thinking in that mentality, you, uh, you write stories that are going to be more geared towards done in one. And when your reading audience is reading that again and again and again, you know, you know, in a Pavlovian response, that's what you're attracted to, and you can do that kind of story. Right. You can't do that today. It's kind of sad, but it's just how it's like you said. It's how it works. That's a great point. And I also wonder if if part of what owes into that is we now live in the days where you know exactly what you're going to get for the most part when you pick something up. Yeah. Whereas back in the day, I mean, a lot of what the appeal is to at least to me, and I think other collectors too, other other readers and fans too, of titles like Brave and the Bold or DC Comics Presents or Marvel Team Up, is you would look at it. And it would have an awesome cover on it. And it would be Spider-Man and some fucking dude you never heard of before, but he has a cool outfit. So you'd pick it up because it looked cool. And I think that was part of it as well, as long as all the reasons that you gave. But if you know, you know, six months ahead of time, well, you know, in Marvel Team-Up number four, it's going to be Spider-Man and this dude, and this is what they're going to do, and this is who it's going to be written by, and this is who it's going to be drawn by, and this is what's going to happen, and, you know, here's what's going to come out of it. It takes away any freaking mystery at all. So, it, you know, if you know in the solicit that it doesn't interest you, it doesn't matter how awesome the cover is on it, you're probably not going to pick it up. So it's a, it really is a whole different experience than what it was like back in the day where you just go, wow, cool cover and buy it, you know? And I'm not saying, you know, personally, I think one is better than the other. But at the end of the day, there's a whole younger generation of comic book readers that are going to maybe disagree with us about that. Oh, yeah. Uh, which is fine, because that is what comic books are to them. Right. I mean, I'm sure there's people who read comics in the 50s that would look at the stuff that we love in the 70s and 80s and go, you know, I, I just want to see Superman try to convince Lois Lane he's not Clark Kent by putting by convincing Jimmy Olsen that he's insane or something. You know, it's just... Well, I know absolutely that that's, that is the way it works, that, that it all, in the end, is all very cyclic, because... Everything that you and I are going through today with looking at comics and just going, you know, I had that happen when I was a young kid coming up. I can remember my, you know, quote unquote mentor that I had for comics was that was an old guy named Walt Hadley, which had this magical comic collection. And I can remember going to his house with issues of Crisis on Infinite Earths and showing it to him and showing him this is what I was excited with that was going on in today's comics and him just being totally disinterested because it just didn't look, feel, or act anything like the comics of his heyday. Yeah. And now, you know, all these years later, I suddenly see what it was that, you know, that was putting him off. Whereas at the time as a kid, I was just like, what is wrong with this old man? This stuff is, this is awesome. You know, this is the shit. And uh, yeah, so it all comes around, I think. Everything's in perspective. There yeah. is a host to sad in this, by the way. It's oh, like, read it, read it, read it. It's, it's, it's a one. I'm, I'm getting to it. I'm getting to it. Let me, let me, let me get to the page. <laughs> There's a couple ads I wanted to mention really quick because uh, I know we're. we're we keep saying it, we keep running along, but, you know, there's just so much to say. Uh, this is Wonder Woman and Cupcakes, the Maltese Cupcake. Oh, God. And you have this guy going, Wonder Woman, you need to help, you must help me, you're the only one who can. And Wonder Woman's like, how, Mr. Astor? Help me find the Maltese Cupcake, that mysterious, fabled, legendary idol. I must have it, because I must have it. 
Enter Petula Lori, sniveling, shadowy henchwoman, as if from nowhere. Psst, hey, strong lady, I can tell you where the elusive Maltese cupcake is. It's rumored to be in the hands of the shady man in the uh-oh district of town. And one of them goes, and she goes, follow me and I'll take you there. Is that where you get $5 and, hand jobs in the uh-oh district of town? <laughs> I, I can't say, I, I, I'm married, I can't say. <laughs> Anyways... <laughs> Wonder Mom goes, hmm, uh-oh. And they're, I guess they're suddenly there. goes, uh-oh, great Aphrodite. And suddenly this Asian woman is there. It's like, you're looking for the Maltese cupcake? My charming lady of grace and strength, you've been tricked. Now meet my boss, the corrupt Cindy Blue Street. Okay, she's not Asian, but she looks it. The corrupt Cindy Blue Street, better known as the Fat Lady. You'll love her wicked, snarling laugh. The fat lady goes, you were looking for a shady man. Instead, you find a big lady who throws a big shadow. Ha, 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 ha. Ha, ho, 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 ho. And now you'll promise to give, and now you'll promise me to give up the search for the Maltese cupcake or else. But, but what's this on the shelf up on high? It looks like half a cupcake, half monster. Could this be the cursed idol? Wonder Woman asks, but why such a fuss? What's so important about a stone cupcake? <laughs> the Maltese cupcake idol is rumored to be the ancient forerunner of the modern cupcake. Great historic value for Aster, but I'm interested in what it's worth. And Wonder Woman jumps up and knocks the idol over. He goes, oh, another fallen idol. Meanwhile, Aster is standing behind a, 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 a shelf or something, holding a whole thing of hostess cupcakes. <laughs> So one of them goes, great Harold, what a crummy idol. That's not the Maltese cupcake. So what? My search for it has led me ultimately to, excuse me. So, so what? My search has fortunately led me to the ultimate, a delicious hosted cupcake. Sumptuous, mouthwatering. And the, the Petula Lori goes, I love devil's food cake and so moist. <laughs> and fat lady goes, that princess creamed, oh, a princess. <laughs> God, I can't read this morning. That priceless cream filling and chocolatey icing, worthy of the attention of any serious collector with good taste. And one woman's leading them all off to jail. And now for my serious work, to find a jail big enough to hold the fat lady and her evil friends. (laughs) You get a big delight in every bite of Hostess Cupcakes. That's a shitload of exposition for a Hostess ad. Holy shit. Yeah, I know. It's just like, wow, are are, are you writing a novel? What the hell's going on I think the last five years worth of Marvel comics I read didn't have as much exposition as that ad did. Holy shit. Uh, there is also an ad for the Encyclopedia of Comic Book Heroes by Michael L. Fleischer, of both the Volume 1, which is Batman, and Volume 2, which is Wonder Woman, which is awesome. And there's a full-page ad of Peter Pan Records. Oh, cool. Uh, and I've actually heard most of these. The Hulk at Bay, where the Hulk sounds like uh, an American Indian. <laughs> and uh, you have a couple Batman ones. I remember the Batman Man Bat one specifically. And I can't really tell what's going on in the Superman one, but there's two Star Trek ones there, by the way. Oh, is one of them the Fleavers? Uh, to starve a Fleaver? Nope. Sorry. Aww. And there's a Space 1999... Oh, two Space 1999s, a Conan, Bat- Planet of the Apes, Escape from the Planet of the Apes, and Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Some of those have uh, Neil Adams art. As the, and, as the yes, especially the Batman ones. And the Amazing Spider-Man, the Hulk, Captain America, and the Fantastic Four. And there was one other ad. If I can turn to it, I'd actually mention the others. But we've talked a lot about a lot of these ads on <laughs> on Tales <laughs> of the JSA because they ran in the same issue. Oh, there's a Justice for All includes children. <laughs> Where Superman's hanging out at the police station, he goes, and one of the cops goes, "There's a burglary in progress at Speedy's Auto Parts. Let's go. Want to help us on this one, Superman? Sure, but I'll go my way. You go in the car." And at Speedy's, there's this blonde kid like looking out while the people are robbing him, and the police bust in. We're arresting you for burglary. And the kid goes, "Let me go, Superman. Tell them I wasn't in the building." Superman goes, I can tell them you weren't in the building, but that won't help much. Anyone who plans a crime or helps to commit one is in trouble with the law. (laughs) So Superman ratted the kid out. Like, the issue you just reviewed and that ad you just did make me wish so bad that I had one ounce of, like, artistic ability in me. Because how awesome would it be in that ad when the cops are like, do you want to help us out, Superman? He's like, no. (laughs) (laughs) It just flies off. Or, like, 
I would love to see this in any issue of like Brave and the Bold, where Batman is tied up outside Gotham City because he he it seemed like he was rarely in Gotham City in Brave and the Bold. He was always like going off to the future or some other planet or you know yeah you know, whatever. <laughs> I would love to see you know. And like you said, a lot of those times, the captions would say shit like, you know, a week later. I'd love to see at the very end of the issue, he gets back to Gotham City and, like, the entire populace has been gassed to death by the Joker. While he's gone. <laughs> <laughs> he gets back, he's just like, shit. <laughs> Again, if I had one ounce of artistic <laughs> ability, I would draw that, like, that one panel. Of a of a destroyed and, and Gotham with Joker sitting on a throne of skulls <laughs> and going so how was Commandy? <laughs> While you were gone, I uh, I obliterated everything. Good luck. <laughs> As he sips out of Jim Gordon's uh, skull uh, like Ew. some wine, <laughs> that would be funny though. <laughs> All right, and lastly, we have The Incredible Hulk, number 317 from March 1986, right? Yeah, 6. The the inking on mine makes it hard to tell if it's an 8 or a (laughs) 6. I love the cover on this, and I didn't get it until rereading this issue, exactly what's going on. It's a take on the Ghostbusters, because it's got big... You know, the big red circle with the slash through it, you know, on top of a very pissed off looking burn Hulk, which is totally awesome. Yes, I love this cover. And inside, the story is entitled, You're Probably Wondering Why I Called You Here Today. And uh, <laughs> written, uh, let's see, we got story and art by John Byrne, background inks by Keith Williams. And we start out the story with uh, David, ba- or, excuse me, Bruce Banner, who has <laughs> stolen uh, Professor Xavier's chair for some reason. He's talking to this group of experts in their fields that... Uh, I love his moon boots. Oh, yeah. I, I like the whole outfit. It's it's very retro. It's very cool. And he's talking to all these people, and they're, they're experts in all kinds of different fields. Uh, I'm not going to go into all the different people, because they're pretty much all throwaway characters. He recounts his origin to them and everything, and basically, in the long run, what's going on here, he pretty much is blackmailing these people to become the new Hulkbusters. Yep. We cut to the middle of somewhere, New Mexico, I believe this is, where um, Doc Samson is again talking to himself and recording his thoughts about the Hulk and about everything that's going on. He's basically bringing everybody up to speed on what's been going on with the uh, battle with the Avengers last issue and all that. And Diane Bellamy shows up and wants to know how... He wants to know how she got there, and she has this really cool-looking helicopter that she flew there with. Yes. and I love that. Yeah, it's really cool-looking. Offers to give him a lift, and uh, about that time, suddenly, it turns out, the Hulk was there the entire time. He wakes and rises out of this pile of rocks and immediately gets into a tussle with uh, with Doc Samson, and uh, they're really going at it. Love some of the art in this. There's a lot of pages where the sound effect is the only sound going Yes. On. There's no exposition, no uh, witty banter. It's just literally the Hulk and Doc Samson beating the living shit out of each other. We cut to a page with the uh, Hulkbusters kind of, you know, weighing the whole thing over. Are they going to accept Banner's proposition or not? And they realize they don't really have much of a choice but to. They don't have anything else going on anyway. And we cut back to the battlefield. The Hulk has taken Doc Samson out, apparently, and Diane Bellamy is very concerned about this. She's filming this whole thing for her for her news program when suddenly... Um, Doc Samson busts through the Hulk, excuse me, busts through the rock that the Hulk had dropped on him, busts the Hulk in the mouth. They get into another tussle. This time it looks like uh, Doc Samson actually has the upper hand and he's really, really laying it on, trying to take the Hulk out. Cut back to Gamma Base where we get some nice uh, inner dialogue with Bruce Banner as he's trying to decide what to do with Betty. He doesn't like having put her in this position of being in danger by being at his side, but 
he also does not want her to ever leave his side, and he's really torn on what he's going to do about it. Back to the battle. It's really, really getting hot and heavy with uh, these two guys beating the shit out of each other. When suddenly the Hulk's basically had enough, he rips up a massive chunk of the ground, and Diane Bellamy gets caught you know, in all this, and she is... Basically, kind of like Lois Lane in Superman the movie, there's this collapse in the ground, and she's being sucked in and buried up alive in it. And Samson has a great moment. There's some really good panels that zoom in on his eyes where he realizes that she's trapped and she's going to smother, but can he afford to let the Hulk get away that, you know, lives depend on him taking the Hulk out right then and there and she's only one person, but ultimately, he does the right thing, he dives in, he digs her out, he rescues her, and they decide to take her helicopter to pursue the Hulk. Back at the Gamma base, the Hulkbusters, they all, uh, I'm calling them the Hulkbusters a little bit prematurely, actually, because this is the scene where they all... They become, yeah. yeah. They all basically decide, okay, we are going to officially become the Hulkbusters. Last panel, really awesome part, where, uh, Betty comes looking for Bruce, and she's a little concerned to find him up and walking around out of his chair. They start to have a conversation where he's telling her his concerns and the fact that he really needs her to be a part of his life, but he's worried about the danger that he's putting her in, and he tells her that he has to ask her something, and she says, no, Bruce, please don't. Don't ask me to leave. I just couldn't. Not now, not after. He says, no, Betty, I'm not asking you to leave. Not ever. I'm asking you to marry me and that dun, dun, dun. yeah that's how the issue ends what'd you think of this one uh i liked it i liked it a lot i <clears throat> i want to refer to this group as the all new all different hulkbusters because burn uh just really quickly assembles a group of varying nationalities and races <laughs> yeah, it's the deep space nine cast basically yeah, yeah you, you have a, a a southern uh a southern guy who was a former who is a retired uh, army corps of Emil- engineers demolition expert uh you have a deep sea diver person uh sam sam j Larroquette. Uh, and the only reason i'm really mentioning him is he actually goes on into the peter david run a little bit oh okay who is known as the rock uh, and was a uh, under under contract six weeks ago to Argo Industries and survived almost every harsh inhuman climate on the planet. Dr. Armand Martel, who is a xenobiology expert and French, by the way. And Heidiko Takata, well-renowned expert on geophysical conditions. And it's just... <laughs> it's just basically this is a group of people that have all really fucked up their lives. They're really good at what they do, but they've ruined their careers. And Bruce is like, okay, uh, you guys got a choice. You can not work, or you can work for me. Right. Think about that. Good luck. And there is even uh, the woman, Carol, Caroline Parmenter, and apparently Laroquet had a relationship in the past. Because when they're talking about whether or not to take the job... uh, she puts his hand on hers and says, it's been good, it's good seeing you again, Sam. It's just, this team doesn't really feel like anything. That's right. my only issue with the issue, is that he has put together an animated uh, Saturday morning cartoon cast for a team. And since really nothing comes of these characters, uh, I, I, I could never really get emotionally invested in them. But, having said that, the Doc Samson Hulk fight scenes were Awesome. Oh yes. I mean, that's that's why you want to come to the party. It's really great. The Hulk's hair is all messed up, mm-hmm. like through most of the issue, and that's a that's a it's a minor detail. But to me, it's just like showing that this isn't the Hulk, the the kind of by the numbers Hulk of the past. This this is the a serious creature that is that is a destructive force of nature more than just a, a, a big strong guy who tears things up. I love. Uh, I like page number ten, the very first panel where he, the Hulk, smashes his fist down on uh, Doc Samson's shoulders. I'd yeah. love it if the next panel was Doc Samson standing there without arms, because it pretty much looks like he should just cleave his arms right off with a with a blow like that. Oh, the page before that has an interesting little uh, like karate kick. 
to the Hulk's face where he hops up on a rock and just yep. fucking puts his heel in the Hulk's jaw. It's <laughs> like, Jesus. So, on- oh, just before Hulk smashes him with the big rock, too, where the, the shadow is cast over the Hulk, mm-hmm. and all you see is his eyes. That's really, really sinister. I mean, and, and Doc Samson's looking like, oh, no. <laughs> But on a story level, this is more about the fall of Doc Samson as a character because he is becoming more and more obsessed, mm-hmm. and he's you know he he makes the decision to save Diane Bellamy, but he had to think about it a little bit, right? And then she's like, "Okay, let's go," and he knocks her out and steals her ride, leaving her basically for dead. <laughs> Glad some like you know like the people from The Hills Have Eyes didn't come upon her in the desert. Well, you're right. See, I missed, I, I think when I was flipping through this, recounting the story, I, I skipped a page. You're right. Yeah, I thought they took off together, but you're right. He does. He knocks her out and steals her ride. That's not nice. Leaves her in the middle of the desert. <laughs> oh, it's awesome. But, uh, no, the, the proposal was cool. It's really sad, though, to consider there's only two more issues in Burns' run. Oh, really? Yeah. Now, my question was, again, see, I, I, I don't remember this near as well as I thought I did. Now, do these people that he's assembled as the Hulkbusters, do they all wind up as Hulkbusters actually in costume as Hulkbusters? In the next issue. So how does that work with the little short, fat old lady? She I forget. Up- she, she's, I think she's more of the people, uh, one of the people that hangs out at the base. Okay, yeah. That's what um, I was expecting. I'm really not sure. I know that... Caroline and the demolition expert and Larroquette go out in the field. Okay. And I think the other two kind of stay behind. But, it, you know, they all join together and it's this big bonding moment. But you realize they don't have another option. <laughs> this Doesn't... isn't the Fantastic Four deciding they're going to use their powers to fight, you know, the weird things of the world. This is five people who, who need work. Doesn't one of these characters end up getting offed pretty quick, too? Yes. Yeah, I thought so. I won't tell you who, but it but it becomes a main sticking point. Yeah. Uh for the for for the foreseeable future of this run. But yeah, Burns only got two more issues. Man. He had a really short run on this. So a lot of the awesomeness and some not so awesomeness that came along was really just, you know, picking up the pieces from what he set up. Mm-hmm. And and fortunately it really panned out this time around, whereas something like uh uh, Avengers West Coast, I would I would argue didn't so much because I thought he was setting up some great stuff. I liked where uh, Byrne had uh, who was it Kang was eliminating other alternate timelines, yeah. and it looked like that might be going in a really interesting direction. And then, if I remember properly, it really kind of didn't. After you know, but he left. He left and left the whole thing dangling. And whoever the next team was tried to pick up the pieces, but I don't think they knew where he was going, and it didn't just didn't pan out. That's a hard thing to do. Yeah, <laughs> it's just really a hard thing to do. Well, I and think ultimately we we have come to eventually see where all of this bit burn in the ass in the long run. I think that's one of the reasons why today he's just a name rather than a god like he was back during this time. Is that he he earned himself that reputation as the guy that would sail in like a fucking rock star, you know, do his thing, and then he'd fucking bail halfway into something and not finish it and leave everybody just kind of hanging. And while it, I mean, it was never cool, but I think it, it just added up eventually to, I think that sadly is more of his legacy than any of his, the actual great work that he did. And that's really sad, I think. Well, in this particular title, it's not so much that he left the title. He left the freaking company. Right. You know, this is this is literally right before he left to go do Superman. Mm-hmm. So... But, I mean, if you look at the body of his work, you just see example after example after example where he kind of did this same thing. Sails in, makes a big splash, bails. And, you know, you add that up, you know, and, and you know, in, in fan memory and in fans eyes a lot of times it only takes two or three times of doing that before it feels like you've done it a hundred times because look at green yeah. gray everybody bitches about 
Jean Grey dying and coming back, dying and coming back. It's really only happened a couple of times, but to the fans, it's happened a million times because it's just one. It's been one time too many, and I think it's the same thing with Byrne. I think he pulled this trick one time too many that that becomes his legacy is the guy that sailed in. And, you know, some people like me that think he's a god think he sailed in and made a great splash, and then other people that are detractors think he sailed in, fucked everything up, and then failed. (laughs) So depending on, you know, whatever side you look at, it still results in the same thing of he was the guy that sailed in, did something, and bailed. And and I hate to see him remembered that way, you know? Yeah, because his artwork is so good. I mean, I, I am such a fan of his. And reading that Avengers West Coast issue, which I did last episode, you know, made me realize how much I like seeing his work, mm-hmm. and and why and why that particular run was kind of disappointing because I really didn't like the directions he took some of the characters in. But now Hulk, Hulk's going to be good for another couple of weeks. I don't know if we're going to stick through it all the way to three twenty four, which is kind of the culmination of this particular storyline. Right. and where it's heading, but uh, but we'll see how that goes. Sure. In the meantime, you can hear Michael and I on the Tales of the Justice Society of America podcast. Uh, that should come out in a couple of days, brand new episode, and uh, so check us out then, and be back here next week for more Back to the Bins and random back issue goodness. Bye-bye. <laughs> Whoa, hold on there, listener, before you go. Hi guys, Scott here for one last bit of late-breaking news. If you're anywhere nearby to Atlanta, Georgia, then be sure to get your ass to the Atlanta Comic Convention on February 7th from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. Michael Bailey and I will be attending, and we would love to meet some of our listeners there. That's the one-day show, Sunday, February 7th from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. in Atlanta, Georgia. And you can find details, including directions, at www.atlantacomicconvention, all one word, dot com. And tell them you heard about it from us, okay? Hope to see you guys there. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of the comicforums.com. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.libsyn.com and is a registered trademark of Demonzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com slash league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcasts.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Thanks.